Who are the Mountain Meisters? Committing to the goal and galvanizing you and your team behind that one single focus. Being at peace with that fear and being okay with it. You gain a real appreciation for your life and for what you have. Learn about their extreme lives on rock, snow, and ice five days a week with your hosts, Russell Wilcox and Ben Shank. Hello, welcome to Mountain Meister. I'm Ben Shank. Hey, this is Russell. Today on the show, we have Muffy Davis. Muffy is a seven-time Paralympic medalist in both alpine skiing and hand cycling. She has four world championships and over 30 World Cup titles in both sports. She is an inductee in the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame and the U.S. Disabled Ski Hall of Fame. So Muffy, you've obviously had great success both through athletics and motivational speaking, and we really look forward to talking about that. But first, tell us a little bit about your personal life. Um, Well, thanks for having me here. Um, Gosh, personal life. Well, I'm married. I've been married now almost 10 years. We're celebrating our 10th anniversary coming up. Congratulations. Uh, Thank you. It's definitely been, there's no such thing as an easy marriage, I don't think, (laughs) but it's great. It's worth the work. And I have a wonderful um, five-year-old daughter uh, who is, uh, again, the highlight of my life and the challenge of my life. You've had such an unbelievable life. You had this goal when you were seven years old or, or somewhere around that age to win a gold medal. And when I was seven, I I couldn't even tell you what I was doing. I couldn't even probably tell you what I was going to do after school each day. And and this whole thing has shaped your entire life, it seems like. And how how do you stay that laser focused year after year after year? And you've had setbacks to be able to achieve this type of goal. Wow. Well, you know, for me, it's funny. I got to speak to a bunch of kids this morning who are about that same age. And a lot of them have goals and some don't. Every kid is so different. And so I just was one of those kind of goal-shaped kids. And for me to be able to stay focused on it each year is you have to make smaller goals for sure. I mean, you have to take – you make that overarching what, where you want to see yourself. But then you take – you know, and you make the shorter-term goals and um, the the you know, yearly goals and then the monthly goals. And for me right now, I'm, I'm rehabbing and trying to get back in shape after several surgeries. It's, it's the weekly goals and the each workout goals. So, um, you know, you break it down into bite-sized pieces and, and you break, and you just hope that you're progressing forward and you're making it strides advancing forward and there'll be setbacks, there'll be plateaus, but you just, you always have that overarching dream and goal that if you're willing to keep focusing on it and work hard enough, hopefully eventually you'll get there with all those little steps. Yeah. So we want to talk about one main setback, which has obviously shaped your life and really isn't a setback anymore, but you have this incredible story. You're 16 years old and you were ski racing and a very talented ski racer you were on the u.s development team and you had a very serious injury can you take us to that day sure um it was february 18th 1989 um i was in sun valley my hometown the um on the mountain that i had grown up on we were doing early morning downhill training uh, we'd go up and train on the hill before they'd open to the public so that we could get some high-speed training in without a bunch of moving objects in our way. So w- it was just one of those early mornings, and um, instead of setting the course on the normal run because the snow conditions weren't really conducive where we would normally train, we um, the coaches decided to set a, a course that circumnavigated a 
cat track that had a greater than 90 degree, 90 degree turn. Mm. And it was wow. there on the cat track at about 50 miles an hour on my 215 centimeter skis. I don't know if Ooh. they even make them that big yeah, anymore. Those, those are hard to turn on. Yeah. <laughs> right. So it was on those long boards um, that I just wasn't able to hold the apex of the turn and I lost control, went flying off the cat track into the trees, flew about 15 feet and I hit the first tree with my back. Bounced off of that tree, hit the next tree with my head, shattering my helmet. Oh, it ooh. saved my life for sure. Um, but when I when I hit the first tree, I sustained a compression fracture in the middle of my back. Basically pinched my spinal cord. I shattered the vertebrae and pinched my spinal cord in half. So I had to go into emergency surgery uh, to relieve that pressure. Um, and unfortunately, that they are pretty sure that when I hit that tree, the damage was done, and I had some severe nerve damage, which resulted in paralysis and has left me dependent on a wheelchair um, with a mid-chest injury. And I read that your dad was the radiologist in the hospital at the time, and he read your x-ray. That must have been incredibly scary. Yeah, I now as a parent, I don't know. I look back at my parents and and I don't know how they did many of things. I was yeah, like yeah. their total terror growing up. My mom wished on me a daughter just like me and I think <laughs> I may have gotten it. But yes, my dad had to read the x-rays and so um I as you can imagine and it was a small hometown hospital. My dad was a radiologist. I knew all the doctors, all the nurses. Um it was very emotional. My my injury not only just in the hospital but for the whole town cuz Sun Valley's a small ski town and I was an up and coming and you know everyone had known me and so it was it was um the whole town grieved my accident for sure wow yeah and you had such a promising future looking like you were olympic bound what were the steps that you had to take after this accident to get your mind back to where it needed to be well, right after my accident, as soon as I was medically stable, I went down to a special rehab hospital in Colorado. It's called Craig Rehab Hospital in Denver, outside of just in the suburb of Denver. And I spent the next three months there doing rehab. And in my mind, um, at that time, I was convinced I was going to get better. Uh, I took all my kind of competitive energy that I had used for racing and turned it into my therapy and mm positive programming and if I could have willed it I would have walked <laughs> so I you know I really focused a lot of that I even came home from the hospital and I did a lot of PT um I ended up getting school credit for PE because I did PT so much every day <laughs> um so I really tried to channel and focus on that but um at first it that nothing came back I wasn't going to get any regeneration it what it and it, after about a year and a half I finally just decided that I had to let it go um the whole hope of waking up in the morning, swinging my legs down and walking again and learn to just accept where I was and um, focus on living life. I still had a great life. I still had a lot of opportunities. I had learned while I was in the rehab hospital that if I wanted to, I could still ski again on adaptive skiing. I learned that they had the Paralympics, which I could still compete if I wanted to come back and compete. So, But it, for me, it was really, it was a process. It wasn't, um, some people, everyone comes to their acceptance of whatever, adversity they may face in their own time and and I just needed to take my time to really come to full acceptance um, and I'll never forget the next ski season came around and I was home and I had sworn I wasn't going to ski unless I was standing up on two skis the way I'd always done it and all of a sudden the mountain opens and I just look up there and I knew I had to be on that mountain and I didn't care how because it was on the mountain where I, my spirit was whole and I was free and I just I just wanted to be back on the mountain any way that I could. So what was it about the mountain that 
made you keep going back and you knew what you wanted to do and now you've had this injury. Why would you keep going back to the mountain? You know, for me, the mountain was my getaway. I mean, that's where I grew up. I spent more time on the mountain playing, skiing. I mean, gosh, we all know, we're all, we all love to ski. So we all know the, the joy and the thrill of a great carved run or the wind in your face and how much fun that is. And it's just on the mountain, it didn't matter what happened at school or if a boy liked me or, you know, if I got a bad grade or I was not getting along with my parents, it didn't matter up there. I could just, it was my getaway. It was in a way it was spiritual for me. Um, and so I, and after my accident, I mean, I really needed the getaway. I really needed just the release. And so for me, it was, um, just so powerful to get back up on that mountain. And it was not easy at first. It was, it was very frustrating for a while, but, um, but, the fact that I could still get out there was really rewarding for me. Yeah, so let's talk about that frustration. You're a very experienced skier before the injury, and then you get back out there, and everything's changed. What's it like when you first get into whatever apparatus you're using, or what do you call it, a sit-ski? Um, sit-ski or a mono-ski. What's it like to learn, relearn the sport? <laughs> Oh, I tell you, I have the most empathy for people that learn to alpine ski in older ages because it is a hard sport. Um, you know, learning at three years old, you don't remember. Uh, you're just so young and you kind of have no fear and you just go and falling down is not as bad because you're really close to the ground. But <laughs> so learning to monoski was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, um, both emotionally and physically, because um Physically, my injury levels were quite high. Uh, I have no, um, really not much trunk support and muscle control. So, and back then, this was 25 years ago, I'm aging myself, sorry, <laughs> but 25 years ago, the equipment, the adaptive equipment was not really where it is now today. Mm. Um, and so they, when I first was starting to learn, they would just put me in a, in a seat and it had a huge big bucket. And instead of it fitting really tight, like a ski boot might fit, um, they just padded it with a bunch of foam. Well, we know how well that works. So every time you go to set an edge, the foam cushions and you mm -hmm. slide around. And I was literally at first, it was like learning to ski in tennis shoes. I had no control. Oh. Wow. Um, I didn't have any stability. For me, it was so frustrating. The way I learned to have success with it was I had to think of it as a new sport. I couldn't think of it as learning to ski again because it was too emotionally charged and I was so frustrated. So I just, once I finally decided I'm learning a new sport, I'm learning mono skiing, not skiing. Huh. I did have principles of skiing that I could apply once I got mm -hmm. to that skill level. Um, you know, we still, I still had the same good habits and I still had the same bad habits, ironically. <laughs> Drove me crazy. But once I, you know, it took a while to get to that skill level till I could apply what I already knew. I just had to get the basic fundamentals back, learning how to, you know, side slip again without falling over and then getting the confidence back on the mountain. Cause I now knew how dangerous it could be. Um, so I would go up on the mountain where I had my accident. Of course I wouldn't go to the bunny hill. Cause I was a, I was a hotshot ski racer. <laughs> I was going to go to the top of the big mountain and, the ski patrol used to see me and they would always know that they'd be called later in the day and inevitably I'd go and I'd get over my head and I'd fall and I'd hurt something or I'd break a piece of equipment and they'd come and toboggan me down and they stopped strapping me in the toboggan. They Like I was a pro toboggan rider. <laughs> by the but eventually and through time, you know, I took a little break. I went to California for college, um, needed to kind of get away from skiing for a while. 
But it was there in California. Um, I went up to Alpine Meadows and met an amazing instructor. And he got me into the right equipment. Once you get the equipment dialed right and we got a foam-fitted seat and really got things going, that's when I started to have a lot more progress. Your whole story, not that it's comparable at all, reminds me of me learning how to snowboard. I had, <laughs> I had, I had started skiing when I was like four. I started snowboarding when I was eight. And I remember going up uh, high-speed quad the first run. I'm like, I can do this, going to the top. And I have so much confidence. I, I feel like I could do anything on skis. I mean, I was still only eight. But I go down every second. I'm falling. I'm Ugh. all over the place. It's just terrible. It couldn't be the same at all for you, not even close, because those sit skis, when you fall, it's not like, oh, get back up again. I'll get off my butt. It's like you go down hard is what it looks like, at least. How does it feel when you do fall in a sit-ski? It's true. Um, there are some easy falls when you fall into the hill. That's not bad. But when you're doing, and, and for me, it was in the learning stages, you get this terminal edge slide where you couldn't get on the uphill edge and you're on a flat ski and you know it's kind of like in a snowboard. You know you're going to hook that downhill uh. edge and you're going to flop over and the first thing to hit is your shoulder and your head. And then you just kind of brace yourself for it and you get in this <laughs> terminal edge slide and you know you're going to catch it and you don't know when and you just wham and um, there were times where I thought I was going to start wearing hockey pads because wow. I just needed, I was bruised and I was so sore. I'd finished the end of the day. And the hard part is it's not like, okay, I finish and I can go walk or whatever. I have to like still use my arms to push my wheelchair to get into my car. So I was so tired. And, um, but again, it, when it's your passion, you work through it and you, you have hard days. Um, but then you have the good days. I will never in my life ever forget the day um, and it was many years after I started learning to monoski it was after I, I think I graduated college I came back home I drove my truck to the mountain myself I pulled my monoski out myself I put it together I got in it and I went up and I skied and I was carving full-on turns I was getting the same zing from the ski and I was like yes I'm back it was perfect. I mean, it was what I had been working for, that freedom again. And it was, you know, I wrote my college entrance exam for Stanford about my relationship with the mountain. And you got in. That's great. And I did. I got in amazingly <laughs> well. a good story. I don't know if it was because of the uh, essay, but. <laughs> so I still need to understand more about this, the sitski, the monoski. How much does it weigh? They're heavy. You know, I, I didn't, I have never actually weighed mine, but I had mine in a bag the other day to go to the airport skiing mm -hmm. and it was over 50 pounds. Oh my God. It, so I'm trying to figure out how you're even maneuvering it because you're paralyzed from the chest down, right? So you have no torso strength. Right. So, but you know, it's all connected. So I, when I am sitting in the monoski, my back comes up pretty high so that I feel about one inch of the back where my sensation level is. And then I use a kidney belt, a motorcycle kidney belt, and I strap that back as tight to me as I can so that I am, that's where I'm maneuvering it from, wow. from mm. that kind of upper torso. Now, people that have lower injury levels that have more functioning might have some abdominal muscles and, you know, more stabilizing muscles will have a lower back and able, and some people can even drop their hip in and you'll see them carve and drop a hip in. Uh -huh. um, you know, I don't have the skill. When I was doing a downhill, um, if I was going to catch air, I had to be set up into the position that I wanted to be when I went off and caught air, land and then correct. Whereas you'll see some people that have enough functioning, they can be in the air and maneuver the ski. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't maneuver something that heavy with the limited functioning that I had. Wow. So what kind of materials are, is this an aluminum frame? It's kind of like a mountain bike combo structure. 
to it? Yeah, it's it's it is a um, an aluminum frame. Well, is it aluminum or steel? I think one. I think my one bike it has parts aluminum and parts steel. This is really important to Russell. His background's <laughs> in engineering, so. Oh great! I just miss boots and bindings, stepping in and going, and now I have to deal with shock, preload, compression, mm. all of these things that are so over my head. There are multiple different types of monoskis, and all different, um, multiple different brands. Um, and some work better for, per se, like double amputees that have a lot of functioning, and some work better for high injuries like myself. Mm. There are even skis called bi-skis that have two skis, and they're more stable for people that are injured even higher than I am. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, quadriplegics can be out there skiing independently on a bi-ski. So there's all different things. The weight, most of the equipment, I think, is is not just aluminum. It has to be very, very strong because you can imagine some of the jumps they're taking. I mean, these guys are doing X Games in the monocross, uh-huh. oh, and they're wow. on the shocks. And so I think it's a combination of steel, aluminum. I think that some of them have tried other composites, but I'm not sure how well those have worked. Um, but mostly, I would, I think mine has it's steel and it you know drilled out steel. It's heavy. Uh-huh. I mean pretty heavy and then i have a motorcycle shock that i have in the middle um that will kind of act like a knee so Mm. essentially my monoski is about the same height as my chair my wheelchair i transfer over and i'm in a seat on that and then my feet are out in front of me i'm kind of tucked in but kind of out in front and then i um have that shock which is right under my butt and so when i will go over a bump or whatever it's that shock that will take that absorption but for each event you want the return the you know the rebound to be at a different rate you right want right right impression to be at a different rate so i had an i had a speed a shock for speed events which was a little longer and traveled a little slower and then i had a shock for the technical events that was shorter um shock and it had a faster kind of rebound for slalom and giant slalom and so it kind of came back faster so you did the skiing before your injury so the transition to mono skiing is kind of understandable, but you also have won numerous gold medals in hand cycling. And for our listeners, let me describe to you what a hand cycle is really quickly. Imagine a tricycle, except there's space between those three wheels. And Muffy lays down between those wheels and propels the machine with only her arms. Is that a good description? Yes, my husband calls it a street luge with gears. For aerodynamics, we are very in a very reclined, recumbent position. Mm. Um, my eyes are just over my crank candles. That's the rule in, in competition. Your eyes have to be over the crank candles. So you get as low as you can get. Um, and then you have the crank candles in front of you with, that you push with your arms. But on the street, I always get cars that are like, you're so low, I can't see you. I have flash, <laughs> I have flashers. I don't know what else to do. But um, And they're always wondering if I get nervous or scared. And I like to think that if there was a child on the road, hopefully they'd see them. So, But, but we are very, very recumbent, very low. In the races, how far are you going? How fast are you going? So we have um, different three different races in in hand cycling. And it's all road. We don't do any track because you can imagine the three wheels on the track don't do so well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but we um, will have a time trial. And the time trial is anywhere from 10K to 20K, usually mm-hmm. about 18 or 19K. So wow. I'm sorry. I know in the U.S. I don't even know how long that is, nine miles, 10 miles. And then our road race is anywhere from 30 to 60K and usually about 50. So about 30 wow. miles usually. Hmm. 
road races. Um, but they're different. They're totally different sports. And then I also compete or have competed in a relay. We also have a relay, which is a three-member team. Uh, mixed, it can be mixed gender or mixed disabilities. You have, it's a point system based on functioning and disability, and you have a max of six points. Um, and you have to have at least one of your members has to be a one pointer, which is a high level injury, either a quadriplegic or a female that's in my class. So a one pointer female um, that has a high level injury. And then the other two racers can be a mix up of whoever. So I have competed in that. And those, the, the relay, it's really fun. It's a short sprint, ultimately short sprint, anywhere from um, two to 4K, and you do two laps. So each member will do two laps. So the whole team will go through once and then they'll do one more set. Um, and so it's really fun to watch because the positions, the lead changes a whole bunch based on all the different riders. And you're doing this for over an hour. It looks like in some of your races and that's just crazy. What's your training look like? Is it just you curling a bunch of 50 pound (laughs) dumbbells all day? No, it's just like any cyclist training. Um, it's time on the bike. You know, Mm. you spend, I spend, five, six days a week uh, on the bike for anywhere from 60 minutes is my easy day to two hours to sometimes two and a half, depending on what I'm focusing on and where I'm in the season. And this sport, you're only using your arms. I don't even know if there's another sport. Russell, name a sport where you only use your arms. Uh, Kayaking. Yeah. Wow, that's good. That was good. (laughs) But you also use your trunk and, you know, you're balancing with your legs and stuff like that in kayaking. But it is. It's similar. And um, But we have gears. It's like the wheelchair racers that do the marathons, they don't have gears on that thing. Oh, wow. We just have gears. So I, I've been in a wheelchair racer, and there's nothing fun about that for me. <laughs> Has there ever been a thought to put a gear in a wheelchair? I think we Ooh. might have just invented something. Yes, there are. Um, some people have done that. There are different chairs. They also have manual assist chairs, chairs that have batteries, but you push it, and how hard you push will give you more power or not. Hmm. So what do you like more, the monoskiing or hand cycling? So I, you know, well, my passion and I love skiing and I love being on the mountain and it's been so much fun in the last couple of years teaching my daughter to ski and sharing your passion and watching her eyes light up and loving, you know, the mountain as well. For me, um, I never could go 100% when I was monoskiing because of my disability because mm. if I went 100%, I'd fall. I just didn't have the skill level or the functioning level um, with my trunk muscles. You know, I would know the fast line. If I take the fast line, I get too fast and I blow out. Or mm. So I always had to pull back a little bit, which um, – it's hard. And as an athlete, you, you want to go 100%. And that was kind of frustrating. Well, that adds a whole other element to it because mm-hmm. now you're talking about risk management and knowing when you have to go for it and when you just really can't. That's got to be kind of difficult. Yeah, no, it was. And it changed it. And I'm, every athlete has to do that. I mean, you do have to do that in balance. It just felt like for me in disabled skiing, um, more so. I never really felt fully comfortable. I mean, I still, I never know when I get to the top of the lift, if I'm going to make it off the lift or fall off the lift, just because it's, it depends on if I'm on my edge or if I'm not on my edge or how the chair comes in and how it throws me off. And, and occasionally, I mean, it's so embarrassing. Everyone's like, yeah, you can win medals, but you can't get off the chair. Lift. And it's all just has to do with balance and how you come off the balance. Yeah. But, uh, but in my bike, I don't have to worry about falling. So in my bike, I can go a hundred percent all the time. And I love, you know, we call it the pain cave. I thrive on pushing through that pain cave. How long can you hurt and how hard can you hurt? Um, And that's cycling. Those, whoever can do it the longest and hardest 
will win. So I kind of feel like I'm the athlete that I was before I had my accident when I cycle. Um, and that feels great. While I love them both, um, and honestly, people have asked me which of all my Paralympic medals means the most. And I have to say it's my bronze medal probably because just to get to the games after my accident and, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was my first medal. I traveled halfway around the world to Nagano, Japan in 98 and got, you know, my first three events, I fell in. I didn't even get to the bottom of the mountain. And so in slalom, my least favorite event to get <laughs> up on that podium, to finally finish and get a medal, um, after everything. And, you know, that, that just, I, everyone looks at it and says it looks gold. And I tell them I painted it uh, <laughs> because it was my gold medal to get through that. But, but, but my most powerful Paralympic moment ever, um, was in London for sure. I had mentally prepared to win a gold medal and I had thought about being up on that podium and then putting the gold around and you'd done all the visualization. Mm-hmm. What I hadn't prepared for was to get that medal put around my neck and to look out and to see my three-year-old girl, baby girl, see me accomplish that goal. And that was, for me, the power of, you know, how much sacrifice we make and how much time away. And, you know, she was – my husband was single dad and she had her mommy gone a lot. But to see her so proud of me and to see me accomplish that and to be that role model for her was probably the most powerful Wow. Wasn't that, that also three gold medals, not just one? Well, the, the first one. Oh, it was, the first okay, one was okay. the most powerful. Um, but yes, the three. Yeah, you know, it was great to get up there three times. Your daughter's just like, stop bragging, mom. Relax. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, and you do all these other things too. You play tennis, and I saw you riding horses and kayaking, bungee jumping, wakeboarding at the Great Wall of China. It just goes on and on. Now you're a mother. How do you have time for any of this stuff? Like. I don't. I, I don't. Russell barely has time to put together a podcast. I know. Well, I do. I. I don't do it all every day. I don't. Uh, I love to play. Like, don't we all? I think we work so we can play. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you love your work, so that's part of it. But um, and I'm blessed that now I tell my husband, I'm like, I have to go ride my bike. It's my job. I have to ride my bike, um, which is awesome <laughs> to be able to say. But you, you just figure it all out, and now you know. With my daughter being five, it's really fun that she can do a lot of it with us. And, um, you know, she's skiing now. We were just talking about going on a bike ride tonight when dad gets home because she's riding her bike. So, um, I, you know, I love the outdoors. I love recreating. And I'm blessed that I live, that I didn't have to change who I was meant to be because of my disability, that the technology's there and that I can still ski. I can still ride a bike. I can still do all the things that I love to do. And, you know, 50 years ago, that wasn't the case. So um, I guess I, I've found the right time, at least. <laughs> you have all these different things, and you've conquered so much, but what's a challenge you're dealing with right now? So so my biggest challenge right now is I've been trying to write my memoir for the last 15 years. Mm, oh. So that's what doesn't get done, because I like to go out and play and ride bikes and, and do all the other stuff. Sitting in front of a computer and typing you know, my stories down is a... Uh, is my biggest challenge. And I'm, I'm almost there. I'm so close. And people keep asking, everyone's like, when is your book coming out? You got to have a book. And they, and I know, and I really want to share it in hopes of helping other people and motivating them. So it's just finding the time to sit in front of the computer and get it done. And, um, yeah, we're going to keep, we're going to keep bugging you about it. So (laughs) you shouldn't have told us. No, I have trouble writing bios sometimes. Somebody says like, write a hundred word bio about yourself. I don't know why I have so much trouble about that. I can't imagine going in and writing a book especially because ben hasn't really done anything no, <laughs> 100 not. words should be easy but 
It is. And you know, the hardest part, I think it's getting easier now. The hardest part was kind of outlining the chapters and how you're going to tell the story. And, you know, it gets boring. You're like, I know this story. So it gets boring. And you think like you sit there and you're like, is anyone interested in this? And it's just trying to stay focused on that. And Again, I mean, that's the goal and little bits at a time. And I, I try and take my successes when I get a chapter done here and a chapter done there. So mm-hmm. You're obviously very involved in the adaptive sports industry as a whole. Are there any organizations that you'd like to talk about? Well, one of the um, best organizations that has been a immense sponsor and supporter of mine for years has been the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And they raise money and grant grants to people with physical disabilities that want to get involved in sports and recreation. And they're just a uh, an amazing program. They started as a group of triathletes who had a friend who became paralyzed and um, he became a quadriplegic and wanted to help him raise money to get a van. They raised so much money that they were like, what do we do with the rest of this? And it's just taken off. It's been, become this wow. immense organization that raises millions of dollars and grants, you know, probably thousands of grants each year to people with physical disabilities that really because adaptive equipment is very expensive and insurance doesn't cover it so um, it's nice to know that there's a resource out there for people say you want to get a hand cycle say you want to get a monoski or or any other you know type of equipment that costs you know a thousand a, a water ski is a thousand dollars you know an able-bodied water ski is not a thousand dollars so um, these this company is there to help supplement and people can write a grant it's really more an application um to try and get um, help buying this adaptive equipment so that they can still be active and pursue outdoor, you know, full lives. So is this um, anywhere in the U.S.? Anyone can do this? Anywhere in the world people in the can world. apply. the world, wow. Yeah, they do international. Most of them, yes, are U.S. They do um, require kind of they'll look at finances as well and balance it all out. But And people might get partial grants. Um, some might get full grants. It just they they work really hard to make sure they try and can help as most people and the people that really need it the most. So um, it's just an amazing organization. I've been honored to be a part of it. They do um, every year the San Diego Triathlon Challenge where they have all these adaptive athletes come out. A lot of celebrities come out and do this race, and that's where they raise most of their money. I did a ride with them once that we raised a bunch of money. It was a um, it's called the Million Dollar Challenge and. We ride from San Francisco down to San Diego, and it's a seven-day wow, ride. That's, yeah, it's far. It is. It's a big ride. And I did that my first year when I started hand cycling. It was crazy. I didn't know what I was signed up for. But um, <laughs> but it, very empowering, and you meet some just great people that have just a huge hearts and really want to give and are motivated to see people get out there and, and re-engage in life and not let their disabilities keep them from doing the things they love to do. We're starting to run out of time, so I want to close with one quote that you said in your TEDx talk. Sometimes the greatest lessons are learned from the challenges and the losses. So how have you grown, and what have you learned about yourself since the injury? I call it the blessings of adversity. Um, For me, probably the most powerful thing is that I have learned that I can get through anything that life hands me. You know, there are things that I'd hope I don't have to deal with, but I know that I'm a survivor. And I, I've actually trademarked a term, not just survivor, but thriver. I don't want to just survive. I want to thrive. Um, and, and that I know having walked through the fire or rolled through the fire, I know that I can get through anything that's handed my way. And that's empowering to be able to know and have the confidence in yourself. But I've also um, 
you know, I've had opportunities because of my disability that I never would have had. I mean, I was an Olympic hopeful, but I am a seven-time Paralympic medalist. Who knows if I would have gone? Um, I've traveled the world. I've met some of the most amazing people. And I, I've, I think for me, I've come to be more tolerant and accepting of differences. I know, you know, it's our differences that draw us together. And instead of as judgmental or, you know, I had to grow up early and young and I had to learn a lot of lessons at a young age. And so instead of, you know, I didn't want to be judged by people and uh, um, it, it helped me to not judge and to be more accepting and tolerant and ready to learn what everyone has to offer them, the different lessons that are coming my way each and every day. Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an awesome conversation. For our listeners, check out Muffy's website, muffydavis.com. You can also find any other information for Challenge Athletes Organization on our website, mtnmeister.com. Check out all of Muffy's pictures and videos that we'll put on there. Thank you so much, Muffy. Yeah, thanks, Muffy. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be a part. Hey, Meister fans. There's a section in iTunes that's called the New and Noteworthy section. Basically, in the first eight weeks of your podcast, you can get to this section if you have a lot of downloads and reviews. Yeah, and the New and Noteworthy section is really important because we've heard on average that the listeners in podcasts grow by about 300% within that first eight weeks. So it's very important to us, and we only really need you to do two things. We just need you to subscribe to our podcast and give us a review. And if that happened to be five stars, that'd be wonderful. So thanks for listening, guys.